good to see you all. It's been a real joy uh, to be with you uh, during this season of sabbatical. And you just, uh, I just want to encourage and, uh, um, yeah, just thank you. You're, you're great students. Like, you listen really well, and you engage with stuff. And I know I'm bringing some uh, concepts that are challenging and that are deep. And um, you folks, uh, you do what the Bereans did in the book of Acts. Like, you listen and you think. And you engage, and that that's great, and that is to your commendation for it. So um, thank you for being um, in that way. You know, we, we did the same thing at Cornerstone once. Um, the Lord uh, just led us to put the cross right in the middle of the sanctuary, and it was before the service, and this person came up to me from the back, and sh- she said, I can't see the screen clearly because of the cross. The cross is in the way. <laughs> I said, exactly. Like, that's that's exactly right. If you can't see the screen because the cross is in the way, that's a better thing to look at, you know. And uh, th- this symbolic representation of Christ at our center is is beautiful. And uh, today we're going to talk very much about Christ being at our center. Last week we talked about local church governance and um, the way to think about local church governance from a, a, a biblical perspective. Today I want to talk about r- regional church governments and governance. And, and in reality, what that means is I want to talk about church just about the church and about God, how God has set up and designed and wired his church to function, which we've actually strayed very, very far from. Um, it, and it, it's to our own detriment, and it is a very, um, it's been very hurtful, particularly to the, to the American church. Um, nowhere in the world has the schisms of denominationalism take root like it has in America. Um, Nowhere in uh, the world has denominationalism become so to the front of things. I was driving down Chestnut Street in Lebanon, and uh, I stopped my youngest son. He's he's 11 years old, and um, he's he's very keen and aware of spiritual things. Uh, We pulled up to a stoplight, and there was an Episcopal church on one corner, and directly across the street there was an Evangelical Covenant church. And he, these, both these churches are just, uh, visually, you can tell they're very old, that they're very ancient. They're both beautiful, beautiful churches. And Ben said, are these the same church? And I thought, how do I answer that? And so I said, no. They're, they're, two, they're two different churches. And then I said, but also, yes, because they all believe in Jesus. He said, well, what's the difference? So I gave him a quick one-minute, 11-year-old rundown of uh, the history of the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Covenant Church. And he said, do they both believe in Jesus? I said, yes. He said, do they ever, like, worship together? I said, no. He said, why not? I said, I, I don't know, son. And Cornerstone is just a block around the corner. He said, have we ever... Like, are they like us? And I thought to myself, how do I answer that? And I said, yeah, they're exactly like us. They're full of the exact same people that Cornerstone is full of. Huh. And so then he asked the question, and, and this was where it stumped me, and this is where the conversation ended, because he, said, he, 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 just, he just simply said, well, I don't understand. Like, if we all believe in Jesus, then what's the problem? I was just like, man, that's really interesting. You know, when God looks at his people, he doesn't see brethren. He does not identify you as brethren. He does not see us as Methodists or Lutherans or Episcopalians or any of these things. We're very hung up as the American church on, like, who's in and who's out. Who belongs and who doesn't belong. And how do we know that? And how do we protect ourselves from the people who don't belong? And how do we make sure that we are the people who do belong? These are all divisive, schismatic questions and ways of thinking. And they run in the polar opposite direction of God's heart for his church. Today is by far, the, the teaching that, I'll, I'm gonna, that I've just started bringing and that I'll continue bringing today is, is by far the biggest rework um, that I've pre- presented here at Parker Ford Church. And, um, and it's generally the biggest rework that I present a lot of places that, that I go and engage. 
So I just want to stop and pray and invite the Lord to, um, to have his way in our hearts and minds, to teach us what it is that he desires us to be taught. And um, then we'll continue moving forward into Ephesians 4. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people of God. Thank you for the work that you are doing in our midst. We believe, God, that you have set up your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. And we want to live and be people and work and lead in the ways that you have called us. So God, would you come in, bring your spirit into our hearts and minds and shift what needs to be shifted. Realign what needs to be aligned. Lead us deeply into your way of thinking with you about the church. Lead us into your way of feeling with you about the church. And unveil for us, God, the mysteries of what it means to be your people. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking about the king and his kingdom. And just, it's important to remember that you are an ecclesia. We are the ecclesia. We are a called out people. We are vested with spiritual authority to live the governance of God. We live that governance through binding and loosing. We call people to be bound to God and we loose people from things that are not God. Last week, we talked about uh, the difference between unity and oneness, and we used this painting from Bruegel the, about the Tower of Babel. And the idea of unity and oneness is unity is based in agreement. The Tower of Babel, there was plenty of unity. Everybody was agreed, let's build this, table, let's build this uh, tower and reach to the heavens. But what there was not was oneness because unity is based in agreement, whereas oneness is based in covenant. Humans can figure out ways to agree together, right? And so in all of our denominational places, that, that's essentially what things are. It's a unification around an agreement system. You know, we brethren agree to baptize three times forward and Baptists agree to baptize one time backward and uh, Methodists agree to sprinkle you know, and there's all these different things, and that's a core part of our agreement. It's a core part of what then becomes an agreeable identity that we work in and through together. But that doesn't mean that we're walking in oneness, because oneness is held in covenant. Oneness is held within God himself. And so we should only agree to the point that it is an extension of the oneness by which God views his own people and his own body, the church. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 which is where we will be camping out today. I'll be referring to, to some other passages throughout our time of teaching this morning, but Ephesians 4 will be our place of rootedness. You know, when you think about the scriptures and you ask just a core concept, like what is the church to be? And what is the church to do? And how is the church to view herself? The book of Ephesians answers all those questions. The book of Ephesians is split into two halves. Chapters 1 through 3 is God's perspective of his church and the church's identity in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 is the application of God's view of his church and the church's identity. So it's, it's a walking out. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is a walking out of what it means to walk in and live in our identity as the people of God. We've, talk, we've talked a lot about our identity as the people of God um, thus far. Today is going to be how do we live and walk in this. We started that last week by thinking about what it means to be governed as a local church. But the local church is not the church. The local church is an expression, a gathered together assembly of people who exist together in covenantal oneness, hopefully. But we are not the church. Right now, we are joined with thousands and thousands of believers all around America, all around the world, who are worshiping God in spirit and truth. That is the church. When at the marriage supper of the Lamb someday, when we're in glory, there will not be six billion weddings as we each individually are married to Christ. There is one bride. And that one bride will receive her husband and everything will be consummated and everything will be set, set right. Like this is who we are as the church. So what does it mean to be the church and to live as the church in the places where we are? Ephesians answers those questions, particularly Ephesians chapter four. Now again, think about this concept of unity and oneness, unity and agreement, oneness and covenant as we read these first few verses in Ephesians chapter, one, uh, chapter four and note 
the word one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the, there's the word, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul encourages us, walk in unity, absolutely. But he doesn't stop there. He pushes the concept further. We are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Verse four, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So one, 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 so many times, one father, one God, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I'm not sure that Paul could make it any more deeply clear as to how it is that the church is to view herself as one, as one body in Christ. Our local churches are expressions of our greater oneness. Everybody got that? Our local churches are expressions of our greater oneness. What we're not looking for is homogeneity. We're not looking for all cultures to look and feel and be the same. We're looking for God to express himself in local churches through his oneness. That will be reflected in and through his oneness, which means where division and schism is, he is not. What it does mean is where the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is, he is. Where oneness is treasured above our personal opinions and agendas, where church politics are set aside for the sake of covenantal relationships, where leadership is honored, engaged, and walked out in a way that is in line and in accordance with his scriptures, where love reigns and where hope is found and where goodness and generosity abound, that is where God is. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is where? In their midst. Jesus is not a participant in his church. He is the central figure of his church. We don't gather with him. We gather toward him. He is at our center. And when other things take the center, that's a problem. And we can all agree about other things taking the center and feel very unified about it. But there will be no power. There will be no transformation. There will be no true ministry that actually takes the gospel forward and shifts the culture in which we live. Oneness and covenant. Oneness. That's what God calls us to. And Paul, I mean, just right away, as he is applying what it means for us to live in our identity, this concept of oneness, you can see it. It's right up at the front. We are gathered together under one name. All right, Paul. Wonderful. Oneness. We want that. How do we do that? What's it mean to walk that out? What's it mean to live that? What's it mean to be one body? What's it mean to live under one Lord? What's it mean to express one baptism? To walk in one spirit? Well, Paul's got answers, so let's keep going. Grace was given to each of us. This is verse 7. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You have been given grace to walk in oneness according to the way that Christ himself was given grace. We tend to call these things spiritual gifts. In reality, they are extensions of grace. They are extensions of grace. God gives you an opportunity to walk in the heart of Christ in a unique way that you're specifically made. Nobody else can be you. Nobody else has come before you. Nobody else will be like you after you. You alone carry grace in the specific way that God has gifted and called you to carry grace, to walk out that grace in your world and in the church. And we together, in the diversity of our pieces of grace that we walk in, are still one body in Christ. 
which is how you and a brother or sister in Christ can see very differently about something and still have oneness. You can actually disagree and still walk deeply in oneness with one another because there's something deeper that holds you together than agreement. So often when you listen to a pastor preach, oftentimes the question that comes into your mind is like, do I agree with this guy <laughs> or this woman? Like, do, do I agree? I, I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> that, that. That's shallow. That's beneath us. That's beneath us. The question is not, do you agree? The question is, just, are you provoked? The, the greatest goal of a sermon, I'm not trying to convince you to think like me. What I am trying to get you to do is to go to this book with God, with the Holy Spirit, and to see what it is that God says, and then to courageously step toward applying it in your life. That's the goal. And if I can provoke that in you, if you can leave here going, hmm, I am going to search the scriptures on this, as opposed to, yeah, I agree. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, because that, that prospers oneness. That prospers the covenant together, where we are all together walking out the ministry of grace. I'm walking in grace right now. God has given me grace to come and to teach Parker Ford Church on October 25th. You are walking in grace in that you're a part of the body of Christ receiving the word of God. And we'll be walking in grace in all the unique and different ways that God calls us to. It's beautiful. God specifically gives grace to continue the work of Christ. Everybody get that? To continue the work of Christ. Is that a familiar phrase to you, brother? All right, continuing the work of Jesus. And he continues, Paul in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's that word, gifts. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. In other words, Jesus goes into the earth as a dead man and comes out with resurrection power. And in the light of that resurrection power, he then ascends on high, taking his kingly spot in authority over everyone. And as a good king, giving gifts. Just giving gifts. If you think about it, I mean, these folks would be under Roman government. Does the Roman government give very many gifts to its subjects? No. It actually taxes them upwards to 80% sometimes. We think we have it bad. Right? It's just tax. I mean, that, that, that's what a government does. You pay taxes. You get stuff. What does our king do? He pays the full bill, the bill that you and I could never pay. And then on top of that, he distributes gifts all the time. He does not collect taxes. Remember the great picture of slavery to the, to the uh, uh, Jewish mindset? Pharaoh. How does Pharaoh respond to Moses when Moses challenges him? Does he say, kill the people? Nope. What does he tell him to do? Double their workload. Make them work harder. Make them work harder. What does our king do? He takes all the work upon himself. And he says, come to me if you are burdened. Come to me if you are tired. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm, I'm humble. I'm gentle. You, you, you will find rest for your souls. He's not a pharaoh, rah, rah, dominator. Our king gives gifts. And he calls us to rest. So what are these gifts? And, and, and how is it that we live out the oneness that God calls us to? We hear you, Paul. We're following. So where are you leading us? Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Last phrase is important. So that it builds itself up in love. The church is meant to be a church of self-care. 
Right? The church is meant to be a church of self-care where every member in it is contributing to the overall health and growth of the body of Christ. That sounds awesome. How does that happen, Paul? Well, he gave us the answer. Verse 11. Look back at it. That's where it all starts. It's important for us to understand the local church is an expression of the church. The local church is an expression of the church. The church local is contained within the church regional. And this is how Paul works. You see Acts chapter 20, Paul goes and he calls the, the uh, elders of the church in Ephesus. And they come together. This is a city church. It's expressed locally in different ways. We're not all meeting together, all in the same place every Sunday. But the idea of elders being residing within a region and working together for the sake of the church in that city, in that town, in that area. The book of Galatia, there is no city called Galatia. Galatians is not written to a city. Galatians is written to a region. It's written to a geographic area, 20, 40 miles square, with several, many, many different local churches in that. And Paul writes to the elders in Galatia in that region to work together. Who's he talking to? He's talking to these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This is oftentimes called the five-fold ministry, right? The five-fold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So there's some buzzwords in here. If I stand up here and tell you, hey, I'm an apostle, you're going to get a lot of different pictures in your head about a lot of different things, <laughs> right? I mean, the black church has apostles, we think about it that way. Like, that's, that's sort of for them. Prophets. Charismatics take care of prophets. You know, let's not get nuts up in here. Evangelists. Like Billy Graham. Right? Billy Sunday. Apparently, evangelists like to be called Billy. Um, <laughs> shepherds. Well, that's my pastor. Teachers. Sunday school. Right? They, these are all very, very false definitions. I'd like to rework our definitions quickly about how to think about these things and these offices, all right? These are called office gifts. These are extensions of grace given to people within the church to lead in this grace the church, God's church. These are office gifts, extensions of the church, extensions of grace to lead the church in these offices in this way, for the sake of building up the body of Christ. Apostles, an apostle is an authoritative regional leader who relationally connects and empowers leaders. An apostle is a gifted proclaimer of scripture. An apostle is a spiritual father, strong in vision, discernment, and exhortation. The key concepts we're thinking about Apostolic ministry is vision, movement, region. And a good example of an apostle in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. Right? An apostle is someone who is, the word means sent one. So it's someone who is sent to build up the body of Christ in a region, in an area. And it's, he's a connector. He brings people together. Leaders are drawn to him naturally or her naturally. An apostle sometimes gets like ill-defined as somebody who has to have seen the resurrected Christ, you know, and so therefore the apostolic ministry doesn't exist today because those 12 were dead. Well, Acts chapter 1 from Matthias, yeah, he saw the resurrected Christ, but read Romans 16. Um, Apollos was, never saw the resurrected Christ. Uh, the apostles listed in Romans 16 didn't see re the resurrected Christ. That, that, that is a false thing. And we can take the word apostle and just let it simply be an apostle. It, it's an ascent one. He's an overseer. He's a connecting place. Leaders come to him. He equips leaders and sends them back out. Leaders come to her. She equips leaders and sends them back out. That's the idea. And he or she operates regionally. It's a regional-based concept. Very high spiritual authority. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Paul tells us that God gives to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then gifts of healing then miracles, then helps, then administration, 
And he's, he's setting an order in place here. Apostles are primary. You submit to apostolic perspective, not necessarily apostolic person. Apostles are still humans. They're still going to screw up. They're still going to get things wrong. But the apostolic perspective should never be trumped by the need for administration, which is where we oftentimes find ourselves. The American church really sees itself oftentimes in visionless congregations that are very, very big on administrative programs. What has happened is a reversal of the way that God designs things to work. Apostles and prophets work together. A prophet is an authoritative regional leader who receives and declares the word of the Lord. A prophet sees the world in black and white, standing for truth at all costs. And a prophet knows what is right and or wrong and lives and leads in such a way that those things are enacted or applied. Key prophet concepts are the ideas of morality, integrity, or reality. A good New Testament picture of a prophet is Peter. You see him walking in this kind of grace all the time. An evangelist. An evangelist evangelist is a person with an extraordinary passion for and ability to communicate the gospel infectiously to the people of God. Did you catch that? To the people of God. An evangelist is not for the unsaved. The gift of the evangelist does not exist for the lost. The gift of the evangelist exists for the church. The evangelist's job is to instill passion for the gospel in the church. Not to call a big tent meeting and throw some sawdust down and invite people to walk down at the end of a bunch of yelling, which is how we tend to think about evangelists. Ten suits, ten sermons. Here we go. It's a healer through the ministry of the gospel. The key evangelist concepts are harvest, healing, and next step. And the example, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, is Philip. Philip, we see instilling passion for the gospel in the church. A shepherd is a strong, patient nurturer of God's flock. A shepherd is a person given the ability to walk with and genuinely care for people and their spiritual growth over the long haul. That's a shepherd. A shepherd can look at any person in the entire world and say, where are you right now? I can help you get one step closer to Jesus. I can help, and it doesn't matter if you know the most stuff in the, about God, if you're a learned theologian or if, you know, drunk in the gutter. A shepherd can read a person and see their need and nurture them one step closer to Christ. And then another step, and then another step, and then another step. The problem with prophetically gifted people like me is that I can see point A and I can see point Z, but I can't tell you B, C, or D to save my life. That's why shepherding isn't the office gift that I fill. The example here is Timothy. The concepts are personal, parental, local. Uh, A shepherd is right here on the ground, in the trenches. A teacher is an explainer of and light bringer to God's word. A person given the ability to offer people a strong structural framework of truth on which to build their view of God, his word, and themselves. Key teacher concepts are education, creativity, and academic It's a mind-based person. And a teacher's not going to try and convince you to believe anything. A teacher's just going to tell you how it is and invite you to build your life on this truth if that's what God is leading you to do. A key example here is James. I mean, James brings it strong. If you read the book of James, he is just pushing and pushing the people to really apply their faith. He gives them a structural framework to understand who they are and to walk the way that God designs them to. The fivefold ministry in reality is actually the fivefold ministry of Christ as revealed through his image bearers. Christ is the greatest apostle. He is the sent one. He is the one who unifies his entire church. First apostles, first Christ. Christ is the great apostle. He is the one who spiritually fathers his church and who draws all things together. Christ is the clearest prophet. No one understands right and wrong like Jesus does. Right? No one can prophesy in the name of the Father like Christ does. He is the clear prophet who is setting his church on paths of right, who is leading his people out of wrong, who is calling for repentance and truth and goodness. Christ is the boldest evangelist 
After all, he is the gospel. So when it comes to equipping the saints to walk in passion for the gospel, how passionate is Jesus about you knowing him and walking in the truth of his cross and his empty tomb? He is the boldest evangelist. Christ is the good shepherd. Jesus stays with you right where you are. You can't run fast enough to outrun him. He is with you here, and wherever you are, he is with you to take that next step and to nurture your spirit and to bring peace and clarity and goodness into what it means for you to go from A to B to C to D and to walk in your life day by day, moment by moment in his presence. Christ is the truest teacher. No one understands truth like Jesus understands truth. The fivefold ministry, as given to us in Ephesians chapter 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, this is the government of a regional church. The church is not meant to be a disconnected group of buildings that people go to on Sunday mornings, do their thing, and then go home held within their own faith tradition. That is not God's design. That's an American design. And for hundreds of years, it has pulled apart at the seams who it is that God means for us to be. Speaking of America, what's interesting is the deep, deep lack that the American church currently has of apostolic and prophetic ministry. And the reason why is because we've bred it. We've bred it. The church of Jesus is never meant to be unresisted. But we birthed a nation whereby the church was unresisted for hundreds of years. What you essentially had in the midst of uh, a Christian community based on Christian Judeo-Christian ethics from the very get-go is a friendly nature toward the church and a friendly nature toward clergy and a friendly nature toward parish ministry. And so America's filled up with these little churches that are able to do whatever they want, which in the meantime becomes schismatic and division. And you've got 17 different brands of Methodists and 30-some brands of brethren. And you've got all of this happening. We don't like you. We don't like this. We don't like this. But it's okay because we're all friendly on some level toward one another. But we still exist within our own little local church community, segregated from everyone else, because we're allowed to. The church doesn't need to come together to resist culture. In America, it's always just been, oh, yeah, the church is great. In that lack of resistance, what happens is all you need is pastors and teachers. You just need people to preach the gospel and to take care of their people. There's no resistance. There isn't the need for vision. There isn't the need for a call for truth at all costs. Because if we don't do this, we're not going to make it. Our brothers and sisters around the world know that. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria know that. That without apostolic and prophetic strength gifts, the EYN does not survive. But in America, it's been easy. But it's getting harder. And God bless us for it. Over the last 50, 70 years, the church has lost its cultural pull. It's lost its cultural authority. And it's going to be good for us. It is good for us. And it is demanding a recall, a truer call, to apostolic and prophetic ministry, for key leaders, spiritual fathers, for this five-fold ministry of evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, working together for the sake of a regional church to affect the world, to lead, to call God's church together. This 36-hour prayer watch that we're partaking in, that Netzer's overseeing. Netzer is seeking to be a place where these gifts can be equipped and called out and walked in for the sake of our region. But we get hung up. We get hung up on what leadership is or is not or is not supposed to be, particularly on a local church level. Just quickly for you, here's some church pastor myths. Myth number one, a pastor is an employee. A pastor is not an employee. A pastor works for God. Whether or not you give a pastor a paycheck has no bearing on whether or not that pastor is called by God to be who it is that God calls him to be. He better do what God calls him to do. She better do what God calls her to do. But this is not an employee situation. Your church might have employees, 
And there should be differentiations between ministerial and between church staff. You know, you don't have to have a calling to be a church custodian. But you must absolutely be called to pastoral ministry, which means that the pastor works for God. You have the opportunity to honor because a pastor doesn't get paid. That's another myth. A pastor gets paid. Now, a pastor is actually, in Scripture, we are called to honor. We're called to honor shepherds. Honor includes support. But you honor your pastors in much greater and stronger ways. Ask any pastor, would you rather have your paycheck or would you rather have your church follow your leadership? And they're going to have to think about that one. Because at the core, at the core, the pastor's not an employee. And at the core, the scriptures do not, do not lay out for us this kind of bureaucratic administration whereby a pastor is seen as someone who is just simply an employee, where this is your job description, and then you get paid for it. Rather, read 1 Timothy 5 and see the concept of honor float to the top and what it means for you to care for not just the pastors who are called to pastor you locally, but to actually care for and support ministers and leaders who are part of a regional work as well. You've done this very well for what it's worth. You've understood how to honor people, leaders, who have a great call on their lives, even outside the walls of this church. Number three, a pastor's focus should be his local flock. A pastor's focus should be Christ. A pastor's focus should be Christ. Say that with me. A pastor's focus should be Christ. Right? A pastor's focus should not be his ministry or her ministry at all. A pastor's focus should be Jesus. Jesus will then direct that person on how to honor, love, nurture, and care for the place, the venue, the people to which he or she is called to care. But at the core, a pastor's focus is not his flock or not her flock. It is Christ. A pastor should marry, bury, teach, preach, study, visit hospitals, cast vision, evangelize, spend time with his family, boost giving, minister communion, stay denominationally connected, practice spiritual disciplines, develop church staff, visit shut-ins, plan worship services, pray, counsel, lead small groups, baptize, administrate church business and programs, and not ask for raises or better benefits. This is a very typical American church pastor job description, which essentially we tell pastors, do everything. Do it all. And if you don't know how to, well, uh, figure it out. That's right. (laughs) Figure it out. Folks, this is crazy. The American church job description that we've come up with for what it means to be a local church pastor. And it's time to rework ourselves. Because what we have produced is essentially a job description of an employee who should get paid. The problem is is that we don't see this in Scripture. We see honor in Scripture. We see calling in Scripture. We see truth in Scripture about who leaders are supposed to be. But at the core, look at your text, verse 11. It was he who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Look at the last phrase in verse 16. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What people want to know so often is, is if my local church pastor is a regionally connected leader, then who's going to take care of me? Who's going to take care of us? Everybody look at me. Everybody look at me. You ready? You take care of yourselves. And if you have biblical leadership in place, that means that you will be being equipped to minister to one another. The role of a local church pastor is not to do all of these things in number four. The role of a local church pastor is to listen to Christ, to do some of these things as Christ directs him to, and at all costs to equip all of you to do these things to and for one another. So somebody goes in the hospital. What's, what, what's going what's gonna to happen? Well, we're going to need to see Tim or Josh. 
Why? They're our pastor. We pay them. Then I'm in the hospital. I want to be supported in that. Absolutely you want to be supported in that. That's great. If you or somebody you love goes in the hospital, yes, there should absolutely be spiritual care from the local church that you are covenanted with. But where in the world does it say that a person needs to be there for everything? And what's to say that Tim or Josh knows how to best to minister to you in that environment? The question is not, who do we pay to do this job? The question is rather, who should go and serve our brother or sister in this time in the hospital? Oh, we've got deacons. Well, that's an interesting perspective. We've talked about them. What does it mean to be served and to serve in that way? If you as a church are shepherded by a person who is also called regionally to lead and to shepherd in that regard, you are doubly blessed. You want to know the best way to kill a business? Best way to kill a business is to keep everything inward <laughs> and to only focus on yourself and to only look at yourself and to not pay attention to the market and to not pay attention to your city and to not pay attention to prospering that work and in those ways. Stay as inward focused as you possibly can and you will close your doors very, very quickly and your bottom line will feel it immediately. Any businessman who has any sense in him or herself or business person stays outward connected to see what's going on. Where's the market headed? What are my competitors doing? What's the best marketing strategy for this situation? What does it mean for me to take my core values and to enact them in the world? What does it mean for me to me be benevolent? Completely secular businesses know the power of giving to their community and of being present in that place. But that's what we ask our pastors to do. You stay here and you focus on me. Why? Because we hired you and that's your job. No, it's not. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers exist to lead you in being equipped to serve and minister to one another, to build up the body of Christ until you are governing yourself. The local church is not the fullness of the church. And if you have a leader here who is called to larger regional ministry, you have a strong gift. And should think very, very deeply about how to honor and release that. The church is God's family, God's body, God's bride, God's flock, and God's temple. Those are the five major pictures of the church in the New Testament. Family, body, bride, flock, and temple. Now get this. God's design for families, bodies, brides, flocks, and temples is for their flourishing. Under leadership and governance as he has designed and formed it in accordance with his kingdom principles. All of these, these five pictures are given authority, are given a way to think about themselves and to live in health. And that is through leadership and governance. And a regional church and a local church are no different. I know I'm up at my time, but I, I needed to just apply this one way. Is that, is that all right? Um, I took a sabbatical in 2010, and it was a very difficult season for me. I, I was just on a lot of levels, like, questioning my very core identity as whether or not God wanted me to do this ministry thing anymore. And there was a lot of what that went into that that I won't go into, but I, I will say this. The greatest gift that the Lord gave me on sabbatical, and I took a sabbatical as, as a full-time pastor. Right? I mean, I was pastoring Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, and was working hard to prosper that congregation and uh, was trying to, like, mess around with nets or on the side. Um, but I wasn't doing either one very well <laughs> at that point in time. Um, because in the view of Cornerstone, I was divided and I was, I was spending my time somewhere else. And they were feeling neglected. In Netzer, I wasn't connecting to and equipping regional leaders the way that I should because I kept having this, like, guilt trip this other direction. And so even when I did connect with them, it wasn't with the right spirit or in the right frame of mind, and so there wasn't transformational development that was happening as a result of it. The Lord, I took a six-month sabbatical, which was the perfect time amount of time that I needed because it took till month five <laughs> for me to actually hear from God say these words that are so full of grace. Jay, you are not a pastor. 
well, so I guess I'll go back to building houses. <laughs> right? You, you are not a pastor. Okay. Okay. Look at yourself. Look at what people tell you. Look at what Cornerstone herself tells you. You are prophetically called. You're a prophet. In the, in the office gift sense, you, you are prophetically gifted. You are prophetically called. This is how I mean for you to serve my church. Stop trying to be a pastor. I thought to myself, well, man, what's this going to mean when my sabbatical is over? So we had a covenant member meeting immediately at the end of sabbatical so that we could debrief with one another sabbatical so that I could give them reflections on my sabbatical and they could give me uh, reflections on how sabbatical was for them. It was great. So we had this meeting. Everything went good. And I'm sitting there with this deposit from the Holy Spirit in me knowing that I cannot leave there with a clear conscience having not communicated what it was that the Lord told me. So at the end of this, at the end of the meeting, I got up and with a level of fear in my spirit, and I said, I just need to be really honest with you. You're my spiritual family. I love you. I love the ministry God has given me here. But you need to know, I am not a pastor. I'm a prophet, and I've been trying to pastor you people. But I can't, I have such, and, and I used to count, like, when people come to me for pastoral counseling, they, they don't anymore. <laughs> um, when, when I did try pastoral counseling, I would sit down. This is, what, this is what prophets do. I would sit down with them. They would tell me their stuff, whatever was going on. And I would immediately be able to see what it was because God gave me that grace to walk in. I would immediately be able to see where it was they were supposed to go. And I would say, okay, here's your problem. You're not following these scriptures. Try following these scriptures. See you later. And uh, a couple weeks later, I would see him passing by church, and I would go, hey, how's it going? And they would be like, well, I'm in the exact same spot that I was, except now I feel guilty because I'm not following the scriptures you told me. And I would say, well, that's too bad. <laughs> Give me a call if you need any help. You know, and they would come back for help, and I would say, and I would listen to them, and I would listen to them, and I would listen to them. And I, I, I would talk like three minutes out of an hour-long counseling session, and I would say, have you done what I told you to do the first time? No. Well, go do that. But they can't go do that because what I'm seeing out of their number lines, they're at A, and I'm seeing G, and I'm telling them to go from A to G without B, C, D, E, and F. That's prophetic ministry. Somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to keep the church moving and clarified about what the end goal actually really is. But that person should not be considering themselves the day-by-day, step-by-step nurturer moving these, because it's just not there. There's not grace for it. And, and that's what, when we understood the Cornerstone heard that, and they said, he's right. He's not a pastor. Wonderful. We have a prophetically gifted senior leader. That's great. Jay, how can we honor that call in you? And so we sat down and we creatively began to hash through this. And we talked with it about as elders. We talked about it as covenant members until the Lord opened up this door for me to begin to serve. They, they took responsibilities away from me that I shouldn't have had to begin with. Right? They gave me a stewardship to be able to serve in Netzer the way that God had called me to and to operate regionally and to partner with Tim and to, to, to tie together both halves of southeastern Pennsylvania. You know, and it was, it was beautiful. And, and I still serve at Cornerstone, and I still am prophetic in those ways. I still teach and vision and meet with the elders and all that great stuff. And that's not to say I shouldn't be shepherding. Being prophetically gifted doesn't mean you can just be a jerk. Right? You, I can still engage the activity of shepherding, but I don't have the grace to walk in that office identity. It, 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 it's a major rework of the way that we are used to thinking of ourselves. But it is the core identity of the church to be equipped to do the work of the ministry so that you yourselves are ministering to you yourselves. The body is meant to heal itself. That's what happens when you cut yourself, right? You don't just go get a new patch put on. It heals. It takes time. It can be painful. But it's there. And it's healing. That's who you are. And office gifts 
are meant to be gateways by which that body grows and is equipped and matures and fulfills who it is that he needs to be. Last thing I'm going to say. Everybody look at me right now. Everything that Parker Ford Church is meant to be resides within Parker Ford Church right now because you have one another. And if you are waiting for Tim to get back from sabbatical, for Parker Ford Church to pick up where it left off and sort of move on, and for you to be cared for the way that you think that you need to be cared for, I'm challenging you today to rethink that. Tim is not the answer to your problems. And Tim is not the central figure at Parker Ford Church. And Tim is my closest friend in the whole wide world. And I love him like a brother. And I think very, very highly of his gifts and his calling. And he is excellent as a leader and a dynamic, powerful force for the sake of the kingdom in southeastern Pennsylvania. But Tim cannot meet your spiritual needs. Tim can guide and care and lead in the way that God has gifted him in his role in these office gifts that will be an extension of grace to you to lead you to Christ who can care for your spiritual needs and who can nurture and walk with you. Parker Ford Church has everything that she needs to be fully who it is that she is meant to be because Parker Ford Church has Jesus. And what you are declaring this sabbatical is that he is your center and nothing and no one else is. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the grace that you have given us in this time. And we pray, God, a reworking, a continued reapplication of your truth, your goodness, your beauty, your life, a true centrality of who you are. Receiving the leaders and the gifts that you bring to us, but not allowing any of that to move into the place where only you belong. We worship you. We love you. We are with you. And all things, we declare that Jesus is the center of Parker Ford Church. And Jesus is the center of the regional church in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I know I went way over, and uh, I feel like the Holy Spirit was moving. So I, I, uh, I just, yeah, thanks for the grace. Really appreciate it. You folks are wonderful. Uh, you're dismissed at this point. Have a great week and go with God.